The sermon that I'm going to read makes reference to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is a confusing book, um, and I, th- I thought it would be helpful if we just did a brief overview of the book of Daniel so that when he's making references to Daniel, you have something to attach it to. So if you're familiar with the Bible Project, they do these amazing videos where they give brief overviews of, of entire books of the Bible. So we're going to show the, the Bible Project overview of Daniel, and then I'll get up and read J.I. Packer's sermon. Good? The book of Daniel. The story set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David, Daniel, who's later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refuse to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted. They're thrown into a fiery furnace. But God delivers them from death, and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power. And so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God, and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God, and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. 
This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God, and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a god, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts and like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast identified as a really evil empire, and it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of Man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that, and that's what these final three visions set out to explore. In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7, but this time they're symbolized by a ram, who we're told is the image of the empire of the Medes and Persians, and then by a goat, who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God, who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. Daniel is deeply disturbed by this, and he has one final vision. We're shown the same sequence of kingdoms. It's Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin.
Now, there's been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160s BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense they are all right. The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus' empire, and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John the visionary who wrote the Revelation could adapt Daniel's visions and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It's a pattern that human beings and their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong, and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. That's good, isn't it? That's a lot of work. It might not seem it, but it is. So you ready for your quiz on Daniel? At least it gives us some contours for understanding Daniel. Let us read J.I. Packer's sermon. Uh, this was attached, if you, if you like to follow along, it was in the mobile e-liturgy that, that you received. If you get the email from the, or the text and the email from the church, so if you want to open that up and follow along, uh, sometimes that's helpful. If you're a visual learner, following along can help. If you're an auditory learner, just listening to me might be the, the way to do it, but you do what you're comfortable with. A sermon by J.I. Packer, The People Who Know Their God. I walked in the sunshine with a scholar who had effectively forfeited his prospects of academic advancement by clashing with church dignitaries over the gospel of grace. But it doesn't matter, he said. For I've known God, and they haven't. The remark was a mere parenthesis, passing comment on something I had said, but it has stuck with me and set me thinking. Not many of us, I think, would ever naturally say that we have known God. The words imply a definiteness, definiteness. A matter-of-factness of experience to which most of us, if we're honest, have to admit that we're still strangers. We claim perhaps to have a testimony. We can rattle off our conversion story with the best of them. We say that we know God. This, after all, is what evangelicals are expected to say. 
But would it occur to us to say, without hesitation and with reference to particular events in our personal history, that we have known God? I doubt it. For I suspect that with most of us, experience of God has never become so vivid as that. Nor, I think, would many of us ever naturally say that in light of the knowledge of God which we have come to enjoy, past disappointments and present heartbreaks, as the world counts heartbreaks, that they don't matter. For the plain fact is that to most of us, they do matter. We live with them as our crosses, so we call them. Constantly we find ourselves slipping into bitterness and apathy and gloom as we reflect on them, which we frequently do. The attitude which we show to the world is a sort of dried-up stoicism. Miles removed from the joy unspeakable and full of glory, which Peter took for granted that his, that his readers would display. Poor souls, our friends say of us, how they've suffered. And that's just what we feel about ourselves. But these private mock heroics have no place at all in the minds of those who really know God. Those who really know God never brood on might have beens. They never think of the things they've missed. They only think of what they've gained. What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ, said Paul. Truly, I count all things to be lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him. That's Philippians 3. When Paul says he counts the things he lost dung, he means not merely that he does not think of them as having any value, but also that he does not live with them constantly in mind. What normal person spends his time nostalgically dreaming of manure? Yet this, in effect, is what many of us do. It shows how little we have in the way of true knowledge of God. So we need to frankly face ourselves at this point. We are perhaps orthodox evangelicals. We can state the gospel clearly. We can smell unsound doctrine a mile away. If anyone asks us how men may know God, we can at once produce the right formula. That we come to know God through Jesus Christ the Lord. 
in virtue of his cross and mediation on the basis of his word of promise by the power of the Holy Spirit via a personal exercise of faith. Yet the gaiety, the goodness, the unfetteredness of spirit, which are the marks of those who have known God, are rare among us. You see what he's saying? We know we can say all the right things. We have all the answers. But sadly, it is J.I. Packer's observation that those who have truly known God are actually rare among us. Rarer, perhaps, than they are in some other Christian circles where by comparison, evangelical truth is less clearly and fully known. Here, too, it would seem that the last may prove to be first and the first to be last. So what he's doing is he's setting up a contrast. The contrast is there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. He goes on. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about God. A little knowledge of God. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about God. To focus this point further, let me say two things. First, one can know a great deal about God and without much knowledge of God. So it's possible to know a great deal about God and have very little knowledge of God. I'm sure that many of us have never really grasped this. We find in ourselves a deep interest in theology, which is, of course, a most fascinating and intriguing subject. In the 17th century, it was every gentleman's hobby. We read books of theological exposition and apologetics. We dip into Christian history. We study the Christian creed. We learn to find our way around the scriptures. Others appreciate our interest in these things, and we find ourselves asked to give our opinion on this or that Christian question, to lead study groups, to, to write articles, and generally to accept responsibility, either informal if not formal, for acting as teachers and arbiters of orthodoxy in our own Christian circle. Our friends tell us how much they value our contribution, and this spurs us to further explanations of God's truth so that we may be equal to the demands that are made upon us. All very fine. Yet interest in theology and knowledge about God and the capacity to think clearly and talk well on Christian themes is not at all the same as actually knowing God. We may know as much about God as Calvin knew. Indeed, if we study his works diligently, sooner or later, we shall. I've not read a Calvin sermon yet, because I'm not sure we're ready for it. But what he's saying here is if, if we study God and God's word as diligently as Calvin, sooner or later, we will 
know much about God, and yet all the time, unlike Calvin, may I say, we may hardly know God at all. So Calvin is using his example, great knowledge of God, great relationship and love for God. That's what we're after. Second, one can know a great, so so first he says, one can know a great deal about God without having much knowledge of God. Second, he says, one can know a great deal about godliness without much knowledge of God. Really? Depends on the sermons one hears, the books one reads, and the company one keeps. In this analytical and technological age, there is no shortage of books, no shortage of sermons from the pulpits on how to pray, how to witness, how to read our Bibles, how to tithe our money, how to be a young Christian, how to be an old Christian, how to be a happy Christian, how to get consecrated, how to lead men to Jesus, how to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or in some theological streams, how to avoid receiving it, how to speak in tongues, or how to explain away Pentecostal manifestations. You see what he's doing here. And generally, how to go through all the various motions which the teachers in question associate with being a Christian believer. Nor is there any shortage of biographies delineating the experiences of Christians in past days for our interested perusal. Whatever else may be said about this state of affairs, it certainly makes it possible to learn a great deal at second hand about the practice of being a Christian. Moreover, if one has been given a good bump of common sense, one may frequently be able to use this learning to help floundering Christians of less stable temperament to regain their footing and develop a sense of proportion about their troubles. And in this, one may gain for oneself a reputation for being quite a pastor. Yet, one could have all this and hardly know God at all. We come back then to where we started. The question is not whether we are good at theology or balanced in our approach to problems of Christian living. The question is, can we say, can we say, church, can we say, friends, that we simply... And honestly, not because we feel that as evangelicals we ought to, but because it is a plain matter of fact that we have known God. And that because we have known God, the unpleasantness that we have had, and we have had some, or the pleasantness we have not had, through being Christians, does not matter to us. If we really knew God, this is what we would be saying. And if we're not saying saying it, it's a sign that we need to face ourselves more sharply with the difference between knowing God and merely knowing about God. 
We have said that when a man knows God, losses and crosses cease to matter to him. What he has gained simply banishes these things from his mind. What other effects does knowledge of God have on a man? Various sections of Scripture answer this question from different points of view, but perhaps the most clear and striking answer of all is provided by the book of Daniel. We may summarize its witness in four propositions. So if you're a note taker, these are the four things you want to write down. Number one, those who know God have great energy for God. So, you're, so, so these are indicators, right? These are like a litmus test. If you want to know whether you know God, then J.I. Packer is going to Daniel, and he's going to demonstrate from the book of Daniel that if you know God, you'll be marked in certain ways. The first mark is you have great energy for God. In one of the prophetic chapters of Daniel, we read, the people that know their God shall be strong and do exploits. The RSV translates it this way. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. In the context, this statement is introduced by but, and it's set in contrast to the activity of the vile person who sets up the abomination of desolation and corrupts by smooth and flattering talk those whose loyalty to God's covenant has failed. This shows us that the action taken by those who know God is their reaction to the anti-God trends which they see operating all around them. While their God is being defiled or disregarded, they cannot rest. They feel that they must do something. The dishonor done to God's name goads them into action. This is exactly what we see happening in the narrative chapters of Daniel, where we told of the exploits of Daniel and his three friends. They were men who knew God and who, in consequence, felt compelled from time to time actively to stand out against the conventions and dictates of irreligion and false religion. Daniel, in particular, appears as one who would not let a situation of that sort slide, but felt bound openly to challenge it. Rather than risk possible ritual defilement through eating palace food, he insisted on a vegetarian diet to the consternation of the prince of the eunuchs. When Nebuchadnezzar suspended the practice of prayer for a month on pain of death, Daniel not merely went on praying three times a day, but he did so in front of an open window so that everyone could see what he was doing. One recalls J.C. Ryle, leaning forward in his stall at St. Paul's Cathedral so that everyone might see that he did not turn east for the creed. Such gestures must not be misunderstood. It's not that Daniel, or for that matter, Bishop J.C. Ryle, was an awkward, cross-grained fellow who luxuriated in rebellion. That's not what he's talking about. And could only be happy when he was squarely against the government. It's simply that those who know their God are sensitive to situations in which God's truth and honor are being directly or tacitly jeopardized, and rather than let the matter go by default, will force the issue on attention and seek thereby to compel a change of heart about it, even at personal risk. Nor does this energy for God stop short with public gestures. Let me say that again. Nor does this energy for God stop short with public gestures. Indeed, it does not start there. Men who know their God are before anything else men who pray. 
And the first point where their zeal and energy for God's glory comes to expression is in their prayers, not what they say on Twitter. In Dan- he didn't write that. I added that. In Daniel 9, we read how when the prophet understood by the books that the foretold time of Israel's captivity was drawing to an end, and when at the same time he realized that the nation's sin was still such as to provoke God to judgment rather than mercy, he set himself to seek God by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. He wasn't doing this for people. He was doing it for God. And he prayed for the restoring of Jerusalem with a vehemence and a passion and an agony of spirit to which most of us are complete strangers. Yet the invariable fruit of true knowledge of God is energy to pray for God's cause. Energy indeed, which can only find an outlet and a relief of inner tension when channeled into such prayer. And the more knowledge, the more energy. By this we may test ourselves. Perhaps we're not in a position to make public gestures against ungodliness and apostasy. Perhaps we're old or ill or otherwise limited by our physical situation, but we can all pray about the ungodliness and the apostasy which we see in everyday life all around us. If, however, there is in us little energy for such prayer and little consequent practice of it, This is a sure sign that as of yet, we scarcely know God. That was the first one. Those who know God have great energy for God. Number two, those who know God have great thoughts of God. There's not space enough to here to gather up all that the book of Daniel tells us about the wisdom, the might, and the truth of the great God who rules history and shows his sovereignty in acts of judgment and mercy towards individuals and nations according to his own good pleasure. Suffice it to say that there is perhaps no more vivid or sustained presentation of the many-sided reality of God's sovereignty in the whole Bible. In face of the might and splendor of the Babylonian Empire, which had swallowed up Palestine, and the prospect of further great world empires to follow, dwarfing Israel by every standard of human calculation, the book as a whole forms a dramatic reminder that the God of Israel is King of kings and Lord of lords, that the heavens do rule, that God's hand is on history at every point, that history indeed is no more than his story, the unfolding of his eternal plan, and that the kingdom which will triumph in the end is God's. The central truth which Daniel taught Nebuchadnezzar in chapters 2 and 4, and of which he reminded Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son in chapter 5, and which Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged in chapter 4, and which Darius confessed in chapter 6, and which was the basis of Daniel's prayers in chapters 2 and 9, and of his confidence in defying authority in chapters 1 and 6, and of his friend's confidence of defying authority in chapter 3, and which formed the staple substance of all the disclosures which God made to Daniel in chapters 2, 4, 7, 8, 10, and 11 and 12 is the truth that the most high ruleth 
in the kingdom of man. He knows and he foreknows all things. And his foreknowledge is foreordination. He, therefore, will have the last word both in world history and in the destiny of every person. His kingdom and righteousness will triumph in the end, for neither men nor angels shall be able to thwart him. These were the thoughts of God which filled Daniel's heart and mind. As witnesses' prayers, prayers which J.I. Packer says are always the best evidence of a man's real view of God. Daniel prayed, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And, and he, he changes the times and the seasons. Here moves kings. Here sets up kings. He gives wisdom. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness. The Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he does. Is this how we think of God? Is this the view of God which our own praying expresses? Does this tremendous sense of his holy majesty, his moral perfection, his gracious faithfulness keep us humble and dependent, awed and obedient like it did Daniel. By this test, too, we may measure how much or how little we know God. Three, those who know God show great boldness for God. Those who, so these are indicators. Those who know God show great boldness for God. Daniel and his friends were men who stuck their necks out. This was not foolhardiness. They knew what they were doing. They'd counted the cost. They measured the risk. They were well aware of what the outcome of their actions would be unless God miraculously intervened as in fact he did. But these things didn't move them. Once they were convinced that their stand was right and that loyalty to their God required them to take it, then in Oswald Chambers' phrase, they smilingly washed their hands of the consequences. We ought to obey God rather than men, said the apostles. Neither count I my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy, said Paul. This was precisely the spirit of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It is the spirit of all who know God. They may find the determination of the right course to take agonizingly difficult, but once they are clear on it, they embrace it boldly and without hesitation. It does not worry them that others of God's people see the matter differently and don't stand with them. Were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the only Jews who declined to worship Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's image, nothing in their recorded words suggests that they either knew or, in the final analysis, cared. They were as clear, they were clear as to what they personally had to do, and that was enough for them. By this test, 
we may also measure our own knowledge of God. So that was the third one. Those who know God show great boldness for God. The second was those who know God have great thoughts of God. The first was those who know God have great energy for God. And the final and fourth one is those who, have, who know God have great contentment in God. There is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God. And God has known them. And that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life, through death, and on and on, forever and ever. This is the peace of which Paul speaks in Romans 5.1. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And whose substance he analyzes in full in Romans 8. There's there... Therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then we're heirs. We know that in all things, that all things work together for good for them that love God. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. He goes on to say, if God be for us, who can be against us? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who's, what shall separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I'm persuaded, Paul writes, that neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the peace which Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew. Hence the calm contentment with which they stood their ground in the face of Nebuchadnezzar's ultimatum. If you don't worship, you're going to be cast that same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that will deliver you out of my hands, said Nebuchadnezzar. Their reply is classic. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. No panic. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Courteous, but unanswerable. They knew their God. But if not, if no deliverance comes, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods. It doesn't matter. It makes no difference. Live or die, I'm content. Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I die or live. To love and serve thee is my share, and this thy grace must give. If life be long, I will be glad that I may long obey. If short, then why should I be sad to soar to endless day? The comprehensiveness of our contentment is another measure whereby we may judge whether we really, really 
know God. Two application points. May ask the band to return. Two action points J.I. Packer ends with. Do we desire such knowledge of God? Do you desire such knowledge of God? Do we desire such knowledge of God? Then first, we must recognize how much we lack knowledge of God. That's the first step. We must learn to measure ourselves not by our knowledge about God, not by our gifts, not by our responsibilities in the church, but by how we pray and what goes on in our hearts. Many of us, I suspect, have no idea how impoverished we are at this level. Let us ask the Lord to show us. I love this deep theology and so simple. First, first action point. Recognize how much you lack knowledge of God and then ask the Lord to show you. He'd love to answer that prayer. Second, we must seek the Savior. When he was on earth, he invited men to company with him. Thus they came to know him and in knowing him to know the Father. The Old Testament records pre-incarnate manifestations of the Lord Jesus doing the same thing, accompanying with men in character as the angel of the Lord in order that men might know him. The book of Daniel tells us of what appear to be two such instances. For who was the fourth man, like a son of the gods, who walked with Daniel's three friends in the furnace? Church, we know that man to be Jesus. Who walked with, and who was the angel whom God sent to shut the lion's mouths when Daniel was in their den? The Lord Jesus Christ is now absent from us in body, but spiritually it makes no difference. Still, we may find and know God through seeking and finding his company. This is a call to seek and know Jesus. It is those who have sought the Lord Jesus till they have found him. For the promise is that when we seek him with all of our hearts, we shall surely find him. It is those who have sought the Lord Jesus till they have found him who can stand before the world to testify that they have known God. Amen? Amen.